0: Hello, and welcome to the modern adventurer podcast where explorers and adventurers tell their stories coming up.
1: You look at the clouds and the mountains all around you and you sort of say, okay, what are they doing? Does it look like the weather's going to change? Do I feel safe? Where am I going to blow if things go wrong? Um, And one of these, we got out by about two kilometers and it, it went from sort of 20 knots of wind to sort of 45, 50 knots of wind. Um, and very quickly that built to sea up to sort of two meters. It's breaking. Um, you've got spin drift, these little tornadoes coming past you. Um, and uh, that, that, feel, feels pretty extreme when, when you're in the
0: boat. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years from Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But before we start, if you're enjoying the show, sign up to our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com where I'll show you behind the scenes, I do giveaways and offering you the opportunity to come on an adventure. My next guest was voted UK adventure of the year for his 364 day expedition of Scotland by kayak and his continuous ascent of the 282 Monroe mountains. His adventures have taken him across the world. He has crossed Iceland and done several expeditions to kayak the Patagonian fjords on today's show. We are talking about his trip to Patagonia and Scotland with some kayaking tips for you this summer. I am delighted to introduce Will Copestake to the show.
1: Thanks very much for having me, man. Uh, Good to be on.
0: Well, absolute pleasure. I've been really interested to sort of learn a bit more about your stories and adventures. I sort of came across you recently and I have to say your kayaking trips, the photography and film that you do is spectacular. And I absolutely, I'm really intrigued to sort of get into your stories about Patagonia and Norway and, but let's start with how you got into this kayaking and adventures?
1: Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky actually. So, where where I live is uh, a small town, it's so pool in the far northwest of Scotland. Uh, the bottom of my garden was the sea growing up. Um, and ironically, I, I grew up in dinghy sailing. My dad's really into his sailing. Uh, I spent most of my time sailing dinghies around the loch. Um, and ironically, I've become a really rubbish sailor, but on a sort of side note of that, I ended up getting into paddling and, and sort of really dove into that pretty full on.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And so I suppose being up in Scotland, you were always growing up as a kid, you had the sort of outdoors to really express yourself. What was it about kayaking that you sort of took such a keen interest in?
1: So for me, it it was, I've always loved playing in water Um, initially for me, kayaking, I started as a whitewater paddler more than a sea kayaker, which I tend to do more of nowadays. Uh, and it was, it was simply because there was someone a little bit older than me, uh, at school who we, we all thought was quite cool. Uh, and he was, wi- he was willing to take me and my, my best mate out in, in river boats and just chuck us off stuff. Uh, I probably spent more time swimming than I did paddling and, and he would pick us up at the bottom and sort of like, right, try it this time. Uh, try not to do that this time. Oh, that was good. Try that. Um, and then sea kayaking didn't really come until later, uh, seriously uh, after after university. Uh, and for me, I really love that ability in a sea kayak to go very far, very remote, but pack relatively comfortable things. If, if you go for a week, you can pack nice food and you can pack sort of comforts. Um, if you're going more minimal, like you would for hiking, you can you can go for a month or more uh, and get all that stuff in a boat.
0: God. And so your first, well, I, as I said earlier, you know, you've done these incredible trips in sort of Patagonia and Norway with some of the, I suppose, being in a kayak, you also, you can go to these sort of remote beaches, which are so hard to sort of get to what was it about Patagonia, which sort of inspired you to do your kayaking trip there.
1: As uh, so Patagonia is the most amazing place it's for me, kind of like uh, Scotland on steroids a little bit. Um, it's the mountains are a little bit bigger. The wilderness is just a little bit wilder. Uh, the weather is fierce out there. It's famously very windy um, as a sea kayaker. That's probably your worst enemy is wind. Uh, and if you combine all those challenges, it makes a really alluring place to go and paddle. As an expedition, I actually went down there first uh, as a guide uh, and sort of cut my teeth in, in kayak guiding for the first time in, in Patagonia. And it was two seasons there where you, you, as a guide, you're basically going around the same river, or uh, well, you're in sea kayaks, but we were, we were on a river system. And you would go round and round and round, always looking at the mountains that you knew behind uh, thousands of miles of, of fjord that basically no one can get to unless you've got a boat. Uh, and that is really alluring to go and sort of know what's on the other side of those mountains. And so the, the end of the second season, that was the the kind of the kickoff point to go and start doing these big expeditions out there was, was that kind of curiosity to see what lay beyond those uh, and to go and explore it by kayak.
0: So were you doing that alone? No.
1: So I have done a few trips alone in, in Patagonia, uh, none more than three or four days, Uh, the Navy there basically are the the sort of the key holder to the fjords and the sea and the rivers, unlike in the UK or or in in a lot of Europe, anything you do in Chile on the water needs naval permission. Um, That's largely because they're your free rescue service and it is incredibly difficult for them to rescue you in a lot of these places. And so it it takes months of preparation to go through and get these permissions to go there. And one of those stipends is, is no solo trips. Uh, You do have to have a partner. Uh, And so my best friend uh, from from the North Seamus Nairn, comes down uh, and he, he normally flies down at the end of my season and joins me uh, and we go off and and do these sort of big long trips together.
0: How did it sort of all start? Were you sort of weaving in and around this sort of fjords of Patagonia or or was it very much a sort of uh, a route of which sort of a historic route that someone's taken that you wanted to follow?
1: So a little bit of both, actually the, the route itself has got not any significance in a sort of the route we chose. However, parts of that followed on with some of the, the original native tribes, um, portages. Uh, now the, the tribes out there, the Cuesca, um, the, uh, the Yaman, they, they were the people that Tierra del Fuego got its name from um, the land of fire. It was their fires on the beaches that the, the early explorers saw and named it the land of fire. Uh, And these, these people were incredible. They, they lived basically naked in the equivalent of a Scottish winter. So this, this sort of rain and wind and it's, it's sort of plus minus five degrees and they they survived by putting seal fat on themselves and and lighting a fire in their canoes uh, on a, on a bed of clay and navigating these fjords. And they, they would portage between the, the rough sections where you could. Uh, and so our route included some of these to to add in, in in terms of our actual route choice, it's, it's a linear journey that we've been doing now over two expeditions. Uh, we're going to hopefully finish it off with a third that we, we had to cancel last year. Uh, that's basically gone from the north to the south through the fjords um, and not in the most linear way, uh, taking detours here and there to go and see the, the, the big glaciers that are tucked in the back of some of these fields, um, which is what you really want to see because the glaciers are very impressive.
0: Yeah. Did you, uh, did you dabble in seal fat? Did you strip off and
1: yeah, good, good bit of butter, butter on there. <laughs> keeps it, keeps it nice and clean. Um, no, I mean, we, we did, we did eat a lot of butter though. Uh, so <laughs> every day you'll, you'll eat a sort of half a kilo of butter in your, in your meals, which is seen. Um, yeah, no, definitely not. Um, the, the seals there are big and scary and you don't really want to go anywhere near them, uh, but I can show <laughs> you here the, as a comparison, um, this is a Scottish seal tooth uh, for those who can see on camera. Um, that, wouldn't
0: want that going through.
1: you. No, so that that's a Scottish one. Um, that's, that's the, the Magellanic first seal. So they're, they're fairly. There's quite a significant meaty. difference. Yeah. St- <laughs> um, and if you think how big our seals are, they're, they're big old creatures.
0: So, so you I you mean, what is that? A couple them. of inch. Tooth
1: yeah, it must be what? Two and a half, three inches on there. It's just, it's
0: big yeah. enough. Good. And so, I mean, we had Katie on episode 20 and she was talking about her trip of Patagonia, which she sort of said, it, there's such a famous sort of quote and I, I, I'll probably absolutely butcher it, but it was something like the scenery is taken from heaven and the winds taken from hell or something yeah. along those lines. I can't land, remember landscape exactly heaven, what it
1: was landscape from heaven carved from the winds of hell. I think you, you see it on a lot of brochures <laughs> down there, but <laughs> I mean, it, it's true. I mean, it is, it's hellish weather, but the, the landscape is heavenly. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, I mean, some of your photography, cause you're a very talented photographer and some of the see- shots that you've got are absolutely incredible. I mean, certainly makes me want to whip out the brochure and plan an expedition down there.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're really lucky to be able to get to these places and the, I mean, the, what you don't see behind those amazing shots is the many, many days of not particularly amazing weather. Um, But Patagonia is one of these places you can basically point a camera anywhere and you're going to get something pretty decent. It's a, yeah, it's a very photogenic place.
0: So how long was that expedition?
1: So the, the first, the first of those expeditions through the fjords was 33 days we we packed for 45 Um, because of that hellish wind and weather, you, you don't know if you're going to get caught in one of these mega storms where you just cannot get out on the water safely. Um, and you're talking kind of 50, 60 mile an hour winds plus uh, on a fairly regular time period. So you're planning quite a bit of extra time. Uh, we got really lucky with the weather on our first one. So we, we shaved 10 days off our planned time. Um, and then the second trip we, we, again, we planned, I think for about three weeks and it, it took us 16 days in total. It was Again, a little bit under time, which is what you want you don't want to end up having a ration on things
0: I mean the fact that you can just hold a camera anywhere and capture these sort of spectacular moments were there any sort of moments along the way which you can look back and think, "Wow, that particular moment is just something that you can sort of cherish for the rest of your life
1: yeah, for sure that I mean there's some of the days, particularly on the first trip we uh, Seamus Shem- Nairn, his, his last name. We, we've called this this effect the Nairn effect in that the Seamus, it was his first ever expedition. This first trip we did. And we had three kind of jewel in the crown points. So amazing glaciers. And every single time we had horrible weather between them. And when you arrived at these jewels in the crown, it suddenly the wind dropped and the sun came out and it was just glorious. And the the middle field particularly, we were as remote as you can get, uh, sort of over three hundred and fifty, four hundred k from the nearest road, and just glaciers everywhere, perfect weather, uh, and just glorious paddling. Uh, and that that sort of memory and, and feeling of remoteness, I think, will cherish for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, wow, yeah. God, I mean, being in lockdown in the UK is only one for the imagination. And I suppose with the sort of terrible weather and With the challenging weather conditions, there must have been some times, were there a few sort of hairy moments along the way where you were like, well,
1: there's there's definitely a few that caught us out a little bit Um, again, with the wind being being the key one there. Um, We we only really got caught out once, um, which was on a crossing. There's a few big open crossings that we had to commit to. Uh, and you take it really seriously. There's no proper weather forecasting out there. So when you get to these crossings that are going to take you an hour or two to get over, you look at the clouds and the mountains all around you and you sort of say, okay, what are they doing? Does it look like the weather's going to change? Uh, do I feel safe? Where am I going to blow if things go wrong? Um, and one of these, we got out by about two kilometers and it, it went from sort of 20 knots of wind to sort of 45, 50 knots of wind. And, and very quickly that builds to sea up to sort of two meters. It's breaking. Um, you've got spin drift. These little tornadoes coming past you, um, and uh, that that feels feels pretty extreme when you're when you're in the boat. Um, it's interesting as well because those waves, as a kayaker, uh, as a sort of an experienced paddler, two meters is not big for a wave. It feels big, uh, but it's very manageable. But with those winds, what you end up with is a very steep two meters and it it caps off at the top. And then from that capping off at the top, the wind is blowing you hellishly sideways. And so you're, you're more bracing and steering and just trying to keep the boat on track. Uh, Thankfully that wind was behind us, which was nice. Um, And it just launches you down into the fjords. Um, We we basically got blown across this, this big open crossing uh, and thankfully found shelter in the islands behind.
0: God, that must have been such a relief to sort of get into those shelters away from the sort of storm.
1: Yeah. It gives, it gives your mind a lot of time to rest as, as much as the body. Um, and it's always funny because you could see this storm coming as soon as it it started to build that we, we got out and you suddenly saw this wall of wind coming and you thought, ah, Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then suddenly, yeah, sort of going, right. We've got to get to that point, which at this point was about a 40 minute paddle away. Uh, and as soon as you get in there, it is a bit of a, like, right, let's stop and have a chocolate bar. That was that's a relief now.
0: <laughs> Cause I imagine you're sort of there weighing up, you're sort of like, is it going to move? Is it not? And then suddenly you're like, right, let's go for it. And because in sort of mountainous conditions, the weather can change so quickly. Probably uh, as you say, after sort of 20, 30 minutes, you're like bugger.
1: <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. No, actually Patagonia, apart from being sort of high in, in mountains, it's the only place I've ever seen weather change that quickly. Uh, I mean, it can literally go from sunshine and no wind to snowing and sort of 20, 30 knots in, in less than a minute. Uh, and it's amazing how those sort of fronts suddenly go bang and they're just on um, It's very digital wind and it can sort of go bang and stop as well, which you'd hope for when it happens.
0: So your plan is to go back there.
1: Yes. So, the, like I say, we've done two trips so far, linking sort of start to finish of each trip. So we, we're doing this very long linear journey through, uh, and and we could do it very quickly. But the idea is to sort of take your time and really see what's out there. Uh, and we had one planned. We're less than a week away from executing it. In fact, last March. Uh, almost actually, uh, tomorrow it would be a year ago today that um, we, we suddenly suddenly sort of said, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. And we've got to go home and isolate now. Uh, and, and I, I was in Chile at that point. Um, oh, wow. and we, we were hoping to link up another 850 kilometer journey, uh, south through the Strait of Magellan, uh, into the Beagle channel through one of these quest portages. Uh, and then proceed down and round Cape Horn uh, and come back again, Um, which would have been a a real fun adventure Uh, One one we still
0: hope to do as well. Yeah. When, when it all quietens down in a few, well, hopefully a few months. Yeah, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. uh, Yeah. It it seems, it seems we're over the hump. Um. (laughs) (laughs) And so I suppose uh, people are probably listening, wondering, you know, would you, would you recommend this sort of trip for the average person for a kayaker
1: for, for an average
0: paddler, probably
1: not um, unless you've sort of done a couple of other expeditions first um, or have someone in the group that's experienced with with dealing with those sort of conditions Uh, for an experienced paddler. I would absolutely recommend it. It's a a superb trip, Um, but it is definitely not one to kind of cut your teeth on as a first expedition uh, because it is a very, very remote place uh, and, and quite demanding um but yeah if if you're if you're feeling confident and experienced it's uh, it's an amazing part of the world uh, and worth the hassle to get the naval commissions it's it's incredible
0: yeah it it just does look one of the most breathtaking places in the world
1: yeah yeah uh, and it and it does it does claim people um, there's there's normally a few deaths a year in, in, June, in a sense, so
0: and so from there you came back to Europe and you were sort of pursuing. Uh, different sort of kayaking trips each year from like Norway to Scotland because your Scotland trip sounds quite interesting. Yeah. Can you so sort the- of, te- uh, for people listening, it's probably best you, you sort of describe what the sort of purpose of that Scotland trip was?
1: Yeah, so my, my Scotland trip sort of, uh, Pre- precludes the, the Patagonia stuff. And that, that started uh, when I, when I left university, I'd done a couple of small on footer expeditions um, overseas in, in Iceland, New Zealand, uh, and, and had always been asked about my home country. And how much can you really say about your home country? Um, it's uh, for me, I could talk very well about a small pocket in the north and very well around the kind of pocket where I was at Sterling university. But the rest of the country, I really had very little idea about. And so the idea was to, to try and circumnavigate the country uh, by sea kayak and then come north again through the Munro mountains, which are 282 peaks over 3000 feet. And the idea was that by coast and mountain and, and cycling between those, as I went up, it would cover pretty much everything uh, in Scotland. Um, and I, I now realize that there's an awful lot more to cover, but. It gave a it gave a pretty good good sort of taster for sure
0: yeah we had Emily Scott on an episode nine and she she ran and cycled this sort of two hundred and eighty two Munros. yeah she she did, she did so- it
1: very she did it very quickly uh she did a really good job of that
0: um yeah she absolutely uh, nailed it um and you were sort of doing the same running up cycling up all around yeah
1: them. Yeah, so when the kayak kind of came first, uh, and of that, I did twenty-one of the Monroes as I passed on the kayak because they, they're the sort of the logical ones you access by the sea. Um, and then through, uh, by the time I'd finished that, it was September, and so I was coming through the Monroe's mostly through the winter. And as a result of that, you kind of cycle in with a bike, base camp, and then do circuits of two to four days going through big rounds of them and, and come back to the bike. And then cycling to the next sort of base camp and doing another big circuit and and coming round. And because because I was kind of solo and on my own most of the time, you had to make circuits. You couldn't sort of do linear things. Much much like I think Emily did. She sort of did lots of circuits.
0: Yeah, no, no. She she said it was a really really amazing sort of experience because as you say, very rarely do you get to appreciate a lot of your own country in such different sort of pockets, like every, every single place has their own sort of unique quality. And with 282 Monroe's dotted around Scotland, you certainly got to experience quite a fair chunk of it.
1: Yeah. I think that there's a certain magic in doing a continual round of Monroe's, Um, you get to a summit and if you are lucky enough to have a nice view, you're looking at and probably the next forty, fifty mountains you've got to climb, and you're looking back at forty, fifty that you've just climbed, and and you aren't actually travelling massive distances uh, a lot of the time. So you're kind of doing a few mountains here, and then you're maybe going five miles, and then you're doing the next five mountains or so. So you you get the same view from many different angles um, while facing this kind of daunting view to the north, going, oh my goodness, there's loads, and then this very satisfying view to the south, saying, yeah, I've done those now.
0: Um, and it's, it's quite a unique feeling. And so that Scottish trip that took what was the good part of a year, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, by complete and utter coincidence, one day short of a year, um, which <laughs> was not planned, um, it was supposed to take 10 months. Um, the, the car was about the right amount of time that I would planned. And then the, the mountains, uh, it was one of the worst recorded winters on record. And that, that really slowed me down, um, <laughs> Uh, I think we had sort of 12 major storm fronts come through in the space of six months and it was, it was pretty brutal.
0: Well, after Patagonia, I don't know what you're complaining about. Yeah. I mean, actually Patagonia <laughs> compares very
1: well with it. <laughs> it's a logical next step.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have to say I lived up in Scotland for a bit and yeah, the weather can turn pretty, pretty can. bad pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, it really can
0: be. Good. And so, and then I suppose you've sort of been doing these sort of kayaking trips just every sort of year or so going to a new place, experiencing it. And is your sort of uh, intentions just to keep sort of traveling every sort of part of the world with this, because it's such, as I was saying, it's such an amazing way to explore. And so you could literally just pick a country on the coast and say, right, I'm just going weaving up Norway or Sweden, I mean, I could, I
1: could I could spend the rest of my life kind of picking picking random parts of the world. Um, I, there's <laughs> various ones I'd like to go to before I, I fall off this planet, um, and it would be it'd be nice to get as many as possible. But I, I think for me, it's a balance as well because because I run a kayaking business, so I'm I'm paddling most of the summer, uh, and then it's my escape. Ironically, is to go paddling or cycling or hiking, um, and so it's it's kind of trying to go somewhere that's a bit fresh and new and and develops your own, your own ability and and sort of horizons a little bit.
0: Um, What sort of tip do you have for people uh, who are keen to kayak? What's the one sort of like bit of advice you would give them?
1: Main thing I would say is not to get too hung up on kit because kayaking is one of those sports that you can buy and spend a lot of money on. Um, And you can have fun in a really cheap boat. You do need to get obviously the safety stuff, so kayak buoyancy aid, paddles. Um, if you're going on your own, spare paddles a pump, and I would recommend a helmet as well. Um, but you don't have to buy the sort of thousand-pound ones. You can buy relatively cheap things. And as a beginner paddler, I always say, if you're practicing, practice with an onshore wind somewhere that's going to blow you into a safe ground, uh, not onto sort of cliffs or rocks or anything. And uh, as long as you stay close and at onshore winds. If you're a decent swimmer and you've got a buoyancy aid on you'll probably get into shore if you get into trouble Um, better if you can do something with a club or or something like that there's a lot of local clubs who will will teach you really well as well Uh, or hire someone like me who will take you out and teach you (laughs) Uh, (laughs) as a shameless plug (laughs) (laughs) what's the company called (laughs) Um, kayak summer isles there we go uh,
0: yeah, I, so I have a little confession uh, because are your trip in Norway, I, a couple of years ago had planned to do this kayaking trip around Lofoten, and I was very, very envious of uh, when I was doing my research for this to sort of see the sort of beautiful landscapes, of Norway, and the trip that you had up there um, very sort of briefly. I mean, how was it so I can um, sort of imagine it and pretend like I was there.
1: <laughs> Norway Norway is basically Northern Patagonia um, It is amazing. The massive fjords it's got, I mean, similar sort of thing. You can point a camera anywhere and it's beautiful. Anywhere you go, it's just wonderful. The culture is amazing. Um, Seamus actually joined me on that trip as well. Um, and to give a kind of background to this, when. When we planned Norway, Seamus and I planned Norway, we planned this in, in June, uh, June, July. And that was our big trip was to drive his van up to Nordkap, a circumnavigation around Nordcap, and then go into Lafoten and just explore Lafoten with Kayaks for, for a few weeks. Um on a whim, I then phoned Seamus and said, I'm I'm planning this big Patagonia trip. Do you want to come down? And he sort of said, Alright. Um, and, and sort of dropped tools and that, that Patagonia trip became this big mega wild adventure and Norway, which we'd planned and sort of paid for, um, then became almost kind of a post-trip debrief and a, and a bit of a re- relax. And we were staying in a, we were sleeping at the back of a van. We weren't in tents. It was pretty relaxed and you know, you're not going out for months at a time. You're going out for sort of days at a time. Um, and so the, the whole mood of that trip for us was very chilled out and, and although doing sort of interesting things in boats, it was, it was kind of very much on our terms. Um, and we, we got fortunate with the weather too. It was, it was gorgeous. Summer.
0: Yeah. I, I take it. You went in the summer.
1: Yeah. So it was kind of June into July. Um, so 24 hour sunlight and um, in fact, Seamus liked it so much when we, we got to Norcap, he, he got a job and, and stayed there <laughs> most of the summer. <laughs>
0: Not really a surprise, yeah. I mean it, as, a, as I was sort of saying, and for anyone listening it, it is just one it just looks like one of the most spectacular places
1: yeah, I mean pretty much anywhere in scandinavia really is is fantastic it's it's just a lovely culture, and the culture generally is very outdoorsy, so, so your your average about sort of person is is very capable and equipped for doing stuff in the outdoors mm. and uh, and they love sharing that as well. they're lovely people,
0: yeah, yeah. Big fan of Scandinavia. Well, Will, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. First question is: Let's get it up. On your trips, what's the one item or gadget that you always bring with you?
1: Um, I'll, I'll not include the kind of practical stuff like tents and sleeping bags and things because you need those on all the trips. Um, the one thing that I carry with me that is completely and utterly useless but very important sentimentally uh, yeah. is. A compass
0: which is completely ruined. It's. Yeah, it I was going to say, own. for people listening, it's um, completely broken.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't point north. Um, there's a large hole in the screen that was actually from someone's crampon, um, which has a funny story. I lost it on a hill, and somebody found it, and through the power of social media, got it back to me. Uh, and he found it attached to the bottom of his crampon. Um, it's from 1914. It was my great granddad's compass. Um, and it, it's kind of been on every adventure I've, I've been on, um, oh, but it is heavy and completely useless, but quite good fun to carry about.
0: Uh, okay. Um, what is your favorite adventure or travel book?
1: Favorite travel, book? Um, I will start with the one that really got me inspired to do my Scotland trip, which is blazing paddles by Brian Wilson. Um, Subsequently followed, but well, that was his, his account of, of kayaking around Scotland, uh, I think in the eighties, late eighties. Um, really one of the first people to ever do so, uh, and long before dry bags and technology and things were really kind of as they are now. Uh, and it, it just beautifully written and really kind of captures it. Um, I, I'd also probably say moods of future joys, by Alistair Humphreys, which uh, was kind of the, one of the early travel books that I read that uh, uh, kind of gave me a sort of, a bit of inspiration to go and do things out and around, around the world.
0: Yeah. yeah he, he does come up with some pretty cool stuff now and again.
1: Yeah. And it, it's, it's one of those books that it, it captures very well, the little bits of expedition, the kind of the the stuff that's not so interesting to focus on, like right? Routine and, and the kind of small subtleties of things that people comment on and things, things happen to you. I think the as sort of getting up and making coffee when you're in a tent and that sort of stuff is, is often overlooked, but it can be a big part of your day when you're. That's your routine.
0: Yeah, we yeah. when last the last sort of big trip I did, we always used to wake up, make a cup of tea. God, that sounds so British saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: essential. It is essential. Yeah, essential. So, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it yeah.
0: certainly uh, wakes you up and starts the starts the day right. Absolutely. Um, Why are adventures important to you? Um,
1: Adventures are important to me because I find they they kind of ground you in your surroundings. Um, I I find going on a longer adventure allows you to really kind of immerse yourself in whatever discipline or place you've decided to be in. Uh, And it it allows your body to slowly adjust and, and react to that. I find if you go in on a short trip, you can see things, and you can push yourself to whatever limits you want, but you don't have the time to develop the routine in it that that sort of embeds you into that adventure, uh, and that over time slowly changes you as a, a person, and and you you basically are, are sort of making a new version of yourself in different surroundings slowly. Um,
0: oh, that's really nice. I haven't really ever thought of it like that, but it's it's very yeah. true. Um, what is your favorite quote or motivational quote?
1: This, this one was, is from my dad. Uh, and he tells me every time I'm having a hard time on an expedition, uh, which is, it's better to be Shackleton than Scott and basically no, when know where to call it. Um, <laughs> 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 um, and so it's, and that's often so into into head so that when you go through a difficult time you go, should I proceed or should I stop, sit and think about this? Like it's, it's quite often better to sort of stop and think. Um, yeah. and better still would be to be Admonson, who was successful pretty much throughout his expeditions. Um, Shackleton still had some fair epics, to
0: be fair. Um, now, who was it? Shackleton. He said, "It's better to be uh, a live, live donkey than a dead lion."
1: Yes, uh, something like that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> something along those lines. I probably, uh, I,
0: again, I probably just butchered an absolute another classic yeah. quote.
1: It's, uh, the the, mo- the modern version. It's better to be a chicken than a cock when you're doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah. No, um, okay. hey, that's. Uh, I always like that one. Um, people listening, are always keen to go on these sort of grand adventures around the world. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to go on big grand adventures? Um, the
1: one thing I recommend for people going. In- big brand adventures is is to leave it a little bit open to what you actually want to achieve. Um, the best adventures that I've ever, ever sort of had were, were often the sort of side things that happened as a result of the initial plan um, and so sort of not, not to get target fixated. And I, and I want to go and do this mission because if you're, if you're kind of there to do one thing, you often forget about all the other things surrounding it and, and you don't have the time to enjoy that. Um, and, and whatever you do, big or small, you want to take that, that sort of take the blinkers off and, and sort of remember that you're in these amazing places or you're doing something amazing and you should enjoy it for, for what it is. Um, even when you're feeling pretty grim about it, if it's, if it's hard, uh, it's, it is types of fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree yeah. with that. I was sort of, we were speaking about it the other day, the idea of going quite on an open-ended adventure where you don't know too much about what's going to happen. You just sort of take it on a day to day, because sometimes if you're so target focused, as you said, you do miss those little moments, whether it's someone saying, come in for a cup of tea or whether it's come in for dinner or, you know, wanting to stop and chat. If you're so driven and focused, usually you miss those interactions, which end up being the most unique and what makes those expeditions really memorable.
1: Yeah, and um, sort of an example from sort of personal experience uh, from my Scotland trip, being on, on my own. Uh, by the, the end of the kayaking, I got very. Uh, the last few months, you get very target fixated when you start seeing a goal, um, and I, I got very good at kind of doing distance and just putting head down and, and paddling, and of course enjoying your surroundings to a degree. But you, you're kind of also sort of making ground as, as priority. And that held into the Patagonia trip where Seamus joined, And in the first couple of days, I kind of went into that and, and recessed back into that mindset of, okay, we, we've got a to B to do. let's, let's do a to B. Uh, and then Seamus sort of pointed out that actually, no, let's, let's go and look in, in those bays and let's see what's around there and, and sort of deviating and slowing down and sort of saying, I, I've never seen a penguin before. Let's go and have a look at that penguin um, and, and stuff like that. And, and slowing down per, very purposefully. Um, yeah. and, and initially for me, I, I found that sort of the first day or so a little frustrating and then afterwards I've like, oh no, he is completely right. It's that's what you're here for. You might as well enjoy it. You're probably never going to be there again.
0: Yeah. Um, I think, um, we were discussing. I was, I think it was discussing with Geordie Stewart and saying, no one really cares how quickly you go unless you're breaking the world record for being the fastest kayak to go round Scotland. No one cares that you put in a hundred miles or 80 miles. Yeah, it's really uh, I mean, just about your own personal ambition.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's kind of your memories and the memories that you can give to other people if you're, if you're in a group that are kind of what you want to produce um, a record at the end of the day is just a, a bit of ego on the wall uh, hanging at <laughs> home.
0: <laughs> Do you have one of those?
1: Uh, I don't officially, no, uh, <laughs> I could probably claim some if I, if I hunted through, but that's uh, never really bothered me.
0: Yeah. Um, well finally, you know, what are you doing now and how can people find you and follow your adventures in the future?
1: So at the moment I'm preparing as hard as I can to get my company back up and running, uh, offering kayaking trips in the Northwest of Scotland. Uh, if you want to join us, you can find us at kayaksumriles.com or on Instagram kayak.sumriles. Um, it's my own personal adventures. I'm kind of looking a little bit ahead now for 2023 to do that Cape Horn trip. Uh, and you can follow me on wilcoastatemedia dot com or at wilcoastate on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing some of you out there if, if you ever come this way.
0: Well, we'll put a link to your Instagram and uh, website on on my website so people can follow you and find you. And um, Will, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your stories. And it's as I say, been a pleasure, John. Fill, f- yeah. fill me with a little bit of envy.
1: So the, at the moment, like I say, I'm, I'm the same as everyone else sitting at home, uh, building a shed is my big adventure. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so feel, uh, feel a little envious of doing that stuff as well.
0: <laughs> no, well, very soon we'll, we'll be so both be out. I'm sure I'm sure yeah. having big adventures, but will thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Been been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now, and don't forget to sign up for our adventure newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did tag me on Instagram at John Horseful. I'm always keen to connect with everyone. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure, but till then have a great day and happy adventures.